welcome to The War Pod, a podcast based at Safer World asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I am Delina Gojo, Associate Fellow at Egmont in Brussels and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore. Today, we will speak to Ornella Moderan, Head of the Sahel Program at the Institute for Security Studies in Bamako, and Nina Wilen, Africa Director at Egmont Institute in Brussels. In this episode, we connect up with the project for the study of the 21st century to discuss the most recent developments in the Sahel region after the double coup in Mali, the assassination of President Deby in Chad, and the publication of the European Sahel Strategy, which puts forward important new approaches to the region, mostly better accountability with Sahelian leader, which involves some form of conditionality over how funds are spent, and also better transparency. And this idea of a new civilian surge, which would entail increased attention towards non-military undertakings, such as, for example, the provision of basic services to all Sahelian citizens. But despite significant investments on the part of many international actors, the region seems to be plunging into deeper crisis. As mentioned earlier, back in April, Chad's president Deby was assassinated and his son took power without respecting the constitution. Most recently, in May, the Malian military junta, which had led the coup last year, took power once again in a second coup. So perhaps it is overly ambitious at this moment to expect that international interventions could shift the tide, but it is also evident that we are not doing something right. So there is something that we're missing here. Where is the gap and how do we address it is the theme of this conversation today. Conflict in the Sahel is something which is increasingly discussed among UK practitioners, but also European policymakers and experts. But it's still poorly understood, if understood at all. Could you start by briefly outlining some of the key drivers of the conflict in the region? I will do my best to be brief, but this is indeed a very complex situation. So the Sahel region has been facing, as most of us might know, a severe multidimensional crisis since the early days of 2012. It all started in Mali, where that year started with a separatist rebellion in the country's north, which the central state was actually very ill-prepared to address. With poorly trained and equipped and managed military forces and a lack of political pathway out of that crisis. This was at the time when Gaddafi's Libya had just collapsed the year before, releasing unexpected amounts of weapons and combatants into the Sahel. These were some of the basic ingredients of a crisis that would, as we now know, last until, well, nearly 10 years later and counting. Subsequent events include a coup in March 2012, the occupation of a large part of Mali's north by violent extremist groups for several months that year, a French military intervention early 2013, and eight years later, well, guess what? Another coup. Actually, we should say two, uh, counting also the one that happened not just in August 2020, but also in May 2021. Meanwhile, an agreement for peace and reconciliation among some of the main warring parties in the northern part of Mali was found in 2015, but never really implemented to this day. 
Meanwhile, again, and I think this is a key lesson we should revert to later in the conversation, while everyone's attention was focused in solving the Northern Mali issue, very few people, especially among international actors, saw the situation deteriorating in the central parts of the country. When you look at the data, it seems clear now that there was a shift in 2017 with a complex peace and security crisis, essentially a mixture of violent extremism, communal conflicts, and increased military gaining leverage in the region of Mopti in central Mali that year. There's a combination of factors behind this. It goes from the long-entrenched local conflicts, mainly over access to land and natural resources that were never really uh, solved and were now being fueled by negative narratives that played ethnic groups against each other. The proliferation of firearms provided an opportunity to act on deep-seated resentments and feelings of injustice and the state's absence, which is a, a big one, I think, from many parts of rural Mali, including the lack of basic social services and the frustration and feeling of abandonment that this comes with, just to name a few of these conflict drivers. So obviously, there are overarching issues relating to governance and security that are persistent and need to be addressed. The situation is, has created and is compounded back by a severe humanitarian crisis with one one out of five Sahelians needing humanitarian assistance to just make it through this year, according to OCHA, in January 2021, and millions forced into displacements across the region. So essentially, and I will stop here for now, Mali has quite consistently been the epicenter of the crisis, but it's important to note that recently the situation has also been deteriorating in Burkina Faso and in Niger. So there is this spilling over effect that combines with very specific um, local dynamics in the northern part of Burkina, as well as in the western part of Niger, for instance. Burkina uh, faces the most of the displacement crisis in the region, while the security situation in western Niger's region regions of Tilaberi and Tawa are particularly concerning. They are currently facing what you could call an unprecedented wave of attacks against civilians since the beginning of this year, with over 300 civilian casualties in village attacks and ethnically targeted killings of road travelers just in the first quarter of 2021. So this is the picture that's quite grim, but this is really the reality we're dealing with. You spoke already around how these are a number of national crises all happening in parallel. I know that they're part of national narratives and national drivers, but I want to ask, what do the coup in Chad and the coup within the coup in Mali, and then perhaps the attempted coup in Niger, what do they all have in common? This is a great question, I think. To some extent, I think all of these coups or attempted coups reflect broken political systems, which is one of the key issues the countries in the Sahel are dealing with. You know, broken political systems where change essentially happens through violence rather than through a process that's just not working. If you look at the case of Mali last year, for instance, well, the August 2020 coup, when a junta overthrew President Ibeka after months of popular protest and a completely stout social and political dialogue, culminating, and we tend to forget this, but this all comes culminated in a law enforcement, uh, well, in law enforcement firing real ammunition on protesters in July. One could argue that political change by a coup in that context was a response to gross institutional dysfunction, persistent governmental inertia and inability to hear citizens' voice and demands and a fundamental breakdown of the social contract. This situation essentially tested the resilience of Mali's democracy and the patience of a disaffected population faced with accurate 
conflict and social crisis on multiple levels. But what happened eight months later in Chad and then another month later in Mali again, so April and May 2021 respectively, are very different stories. Uh, in these two cases, there's a clear temptation from a small military elite to hijack the political process and have democracy take back seat uh, in the name of securing the country and the region. These, I think, are very concerning developments, not least as the past decade of crisis in the region has shown beyond reasonable doubt that there won't be any such thing as stability without fundamental governance challenges being addressed. And this includes setting up political and institutional systems that function and in which citizens can actually trust, including the belief that elections can actually be truthful, be transparent and be respectful of citizens' political rights. One thing that they have in common is that they show that there is a civil military imbalance in the region and that goes quite deep, a historical civil military imbalance that has been strengthened during the past decade by the fact that we're seeing focus on military solutions to a fundamentally political problems in the most part uh, of the different regions or in the region. And I think that it's important to point out that this is not something new, that this civil military imbalance has been there for a long time. Niger, for example, has been under military rule for 22 years uh, since it was independent. Chad has experienced two coups and three coup attempts. And now I'm not even including the latest coup. And there has been a warrior president, uh, self-entitled during the past 30 years. There is very much this military clique that wants to maintain power. Uh, one of our academic colleagues who's focusing on the region, she has described Chad as a country where Politics is conducted with weapons in hand. And I think that says quite a lot about the civil military imbalance, especially in Chad. Yes, wonderful to, to bring uh, Marielle Debo into this. It's interesting that you mentioned Chad, and I think it also speaks to how the crises in each country will impact and maybe exacerbate or maybe positively effect if it leads to less militarization in other areas. I mean, there's this narrative around Chad, especially in the European circles, that it's a force multiplier. I wonder, what do you think the assassination of Debe's senior, is that what we're calling him now? What will that mean for its contributions to the rest of the region? This is a question that has been catching a lot of attention, I think, especially in Sahel governments and their Western partners, whether or not the passing of former President Debe, the senior now is going to have a significant impact on Chad's projection and presence in, in other countries. So far, it really hasn't. I mean, Chadian troops, I mean, mainly remained engaged in MINUSNA, where Chad deploys some 1,400 troops uh, for northern Mali. Same with the G5 Sahel Joint Force and same with the multinational joint task force in the Lake Chad Basin. Well, it is, of course, reasonable to wonder about how this external engagement of Chad may evolve if the domestic situation continues to deteriorate with the risk of troops being pulled back into their own country. We shouldn't lose um, sight of the fact that Chad is not just this reservoir of combatants. 
it's actually a country. It's actually a country with people of its own and with rule of law and democracy issues of its own. If we forget that and continue to just give Chad uh, military a pass to treat their own people and country in whatever way, in the in the name of regional stability, then the, the risk we face for that very same regional stability is to see an internal breakdown in Chad sooner or later. So instead of stabilizing the whole region, we might find ourselves with just a new hotspot on the map down the road. Once again, we focus on this point, and this is the question that is the most asked by journalists, but in general, also by governments that are intervening in the region. And so, Nina, in your work, you've seen a number of security initiatives aimed at stemming the crisis in the region, and yet none of them seems to be working. What are we doing wrong and how can we do it better? This is obviously a very difficult question to answer because we don't know what the situation would have looked like if there hadn't been any external interventions at all. So it's a counterfactual analysis. We don't know if armed groups would have proliferated and expanded over the region if there weren't any external interventions at all. And I'll come back to that. I just wanted to jump in on the previous question where Nella was also pointing out that let's not forget that Chad is also boiling internally right now and and that this could be a new hotspot in the region. And I think that what Nella said earlier as well, that Debbie has made his name as this regional stabilizer or a very strategic asset for Western militaries is problematic because now we see that France Macron is first going to the funeral, showing his support for the new military junta. And then later on, a few days later, he's turning and saying that he's going to support just a democratic transition, realizing, I think, this can't be a stance that you can hold on to much longer. But this is also problematic because, as you said, Chad has contributed or is contributing troops to MINUSMA, to a multinational joint force, and also then to the G5 Sahel. So I think that this is a very problematic situation at the moment, and, and it's very unclear how international actors outside of Africa are going to deal with this. But I think it's an interesting point that Nella made about how we need to keep our eyes on what's happening inside Chad right now to make sure that this is not another spillover crisis for the region. So I'll come back to your question about the security initiative. I think there are several aspects to consider when you look at the different uh, security interventions. And Nella has already brought up a few of them. If we look at the local side, we can see that the states which receive this type of assistance lack a strong and democratic political structure and a rule of law which can support and serve as an effective framework and oversight mechanism for the security forces. So this means that the reforms often stay on a tactical or an operational level, and they're not incorporated in a larger transformation of norms and rules, which means that they're incorporated in a system that is biased and quite dysfunctional, to be honest, from the beginning. So it's very hard to achieve any considerable change when you don't have the upper part of the military, of political leaders, of the security forces wanting to have this transformation. So I think there's also this limited will, will and capacity from local governments to take ownership. And I think you've written that in your latest brief, Delina, and to build effective security sectors. Given this historical civil military imbalance and a very politicized military, there's always a risk for coup. And we've seen that recently, that there is this reasoning behind worrying that if you reinforce the security sector too much, then there's a risk for a coup. But if you don't, then there's the risk for the destabilization going even further. 
So there is a very difficult dilemma to weigh in for external actors too. And then I also think that it's important to point out that these external interventions in assistance efforts, they have taken place in a context of continuous crisis. Nella was pointing out how the conflict has changed over the past five years. So we're not just talking about one crisis, but we're talking about several overlapping crises. Mm -hmm. And it's in this context that, that we're seeing different type of security interventions, trying to address them from different angles. So one more point is that we are also grouping together different security initiatives into just security <laughs> assistance, but we're talking about several different types of operations. We have counter-terrorist operations like Barkhan, MNJTF, and to a large extent, G5 joins the Hell Force, where the main objective is to eliminate the armed forces, uh, negative forces, the extremist groups, etc. And then you have buy and multilateral train and equip missions, where the main objective is to build stronger or better capacity of local security forces. But then, of course, there is different reasons to why they build this capacity. It's not just one reason. It could be one is, of course, that they should be better at protecting the population to stabilize the environment. So that that goes into the direction of counterterrorism. Another is to professionalize the forces by giving them these types of human rights courses and IHL training to install this military ethos and thereby diminish human rights abuses. And we know that security forces that commit human rights abuses, they're also facilitating recruitment for jihadist group. So this is a very blurred uh, mixture of objectives and operations driving these security initiatives. And it's also very difficult then to distinguish between the different objectives and see and evaluate how have they actually fared in the region. We would need very many in-depth analysis of the different forces, how they all operate, how they all relate to each other, also bilaterally. So how MINUSMA and the G5 joint force, for example, I mean, there is still, and I know, and I know we keep looking into this and, and so many of us keep working on it and, and publishing work. But at the same time, I feel like we still fail to understand exactly what is happening and there is more need for analysis simply and on this point of the fine balance between the lack of long-term political but also military reform and this constant need for an urgent approach to tackling the terrorism challenge but uh, also others of course I mean I, I know is again a, a bit of a um, problematic argument but do you see any validity to the disengage from the Sahel argument on the part of external forces? So this is something that some fringes of the Malian population, for example, have been calling for. They have been saying, France, leave, dégage. Do you think that there is some validity to this argument from a short-term and a, and a long-term perspective? Well, the argument that you hear in some part of Malian uh, public opinion is, uh, as you mentioned, quite specifically targeted at France. And I think it's it's a mix, mixture of post-colonial relationship and frustration also from the side of citizens who, who just can't understand how it's possible that there would be so many partners throwing so much money into the country and still 
nothing getting solved. So I do think that, I mean, to quite some extent, it, it comes from a place of confusion, as well as from a place of France also being in this particular position of the former colonial force. Beyond that, I think that the question is, well, which part of the international community could disengage and, and then what? I mean, as you mentioned, there are just so many actors, so it's not even clear who should go, who should stay and so on. And most importantly, well, let's think crazy and imagine that everyone just packed their bags and left uh, Mali tomorrow. Then what would happen? We have in the country a security sector that's uh, highly dysfunctional and that has not been, quote unquote, fixed by years and years and years of training and so-called security sector reform, which is completely styled and, and hasn't been make any progress except for decrease in laws, really. So no change in practices, no change in institutional cultures, no change in the political culture in which these institutions are, are anchored either. So, um, well, then what? That said, uh, international partners, I mean, while their support is needed, I think international partners should also acknowledge uh, their own sh shortcomings and learn from their own failures. And there is quite a few of those. Um, otherwise, there is no substantial improvement to be accepted. I think one of the key points in this area is that countries are run with political dialogue, political decisions that all lead to and translate into public policies. They're not run by projects or by luck frames or by partners' strategic papers. So there is a need also to take stock of that and to try and reframe international support in a much broader, I would say, strategic, not as in coming up with strategy papers, but actually knowing where it is that we want to go. A lot of your comments sort of draw attention to this disconnect between the, the bold ambitions set by these institutions and then coming to terms with the reality of what the implementation of those bold ambitions actually look like on the ground. That speaks to some of the work you've done recently, Nina, on gender, where we do see every document has a gender component and how we should consider gender. But then what that actually means in terms of how operations have changed to consider the different types of security experience by people depending on their gender. Could you briefly describe some of your own work into this and speak about how like meaningfully focusing on gender could potentially bring about positive change in the Sahel as well as other regions of the world and how effectively has that been done so far? That's another really comprehensive and quite difficult question. It's important to start by saying that Integrating a gender reform or a gender perspective to security sector in general is not a panacea that will not make military operations effective or much better than they've been before. That's not the aim of such gender reforms. I think the aim is that you should try to have militaries that are more representative of the societies that they are supposed to defend, that you can see that parts of society is also part of the military, that that is supposed to defend you. And that goes way beyond gender. It goes about skin color. It goes about age. It goes about all different types of diversity that I think are important to integrate in a military or a security sector that's supposed to be representative 
of the population it's supposed to defend. Then there is a lot of research that shows that diversity leads to better and more efficient decision taking because you're bringing in perspective from different types of populations. And that does not mean that just because I'm a woman, I will take the same stance as Elena is taking because we're both women. It means that people are coming from different backgrounds. And the more diversity you have, the more perspectives you can bring in, and then you can probably take better and more well-informed decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's one of, of the areas that I think is important that goes beyond gender. Another is, of course, that current military operations are not what we have seen in the past, where there is two armies standing fighting against each other with weapons. It's often infiltrating the population, influencing the population doing more low visibility operations. It's not all pure physical force anymore. Of course, that still exists. And for those tasks, then the person who is required to do those tasks should have the adequate training, which goes for all different positions, of course. But I think that it shows that we can't just rely on the same type of standard military stereotypes Mm -hmm. of having these large, white, heterosexual, big muscle men as the main Mm -hmm. soldier anymore. We need to have more diversity. We need to have people that represent other types. Of course, we're going to need to have strong, courageous soldiers and officers, but we have to, to have a wider approach. And I think that that could also help to broaden our perspective of what mm-hmm. security is, because we have seen that war rarely stops when the peace agreement is signed, that violence rarely stops for women in particular when peace agreements are signed. And we've talked about that with feminist researchers, that there is this continuum of violence, that violence often continues after the peace agreements is signed, particularly women being subject to trafficking, to increase domestic violence when fighters uh, return home to their communities, to their families. And so I think that that's also an aspect that could be brought in if we have gender reforms or a gender perspective when we look. But it should not be like it has often been. And I think that's still the case in many international institutions that you say, oh, we have gender, um, we have a gender officer, and then we tick the box of gender. That's not uh, very helpful. (laughs) Then it just becomes an add-on. On this very same issue of what do we do about the whole gender approach? I do think that making it substantial is the key, as Nina mentioned, and as we all repeated already. And I'll just give one, one or two examples. One, I think, is that we tend through international interventions, especially through programs, actually, programs and projects and so on, to focus on a very stereotypical vision of how women interact with conflict. So there is the woman victim on the one hand, which uh, should be saved. And there is the woman peace builder who's necessarily on the right side and wants peace and this whole thing about how mothers are this and that and all women apparently are mothers. But one of the key blind spots we have is, well, how do women actually engage with these violent actors? One of the recent research by the ISS focused on that, on how women engage in, collaborate with, and exit or don't exit violent extremist groups in the uh, Sahel, based on the case studies of Katiba Masina in Mali and Boko Haram in in Nigeria. And I think it's absolutely necessary that we try and understand what are the specific drivers that lead women to support violent extremist groups? Uh, What are the specific drivers that lead them to uh, end that support or, or not do so? Because 
It's part of recognizing the fullness of agency that women, as well as any other human group, actually has. We keep talking about broadening our understanding of security. And so this idea of the continuum of violence for specific groups within a country is very relevant. But also, I think we should broaden our understanding of what stabilization means, because after tackling the urgent security situation, of course, there needs to be a better understanding of how to deal then with the with the consequences of that violence. I think Nina addressed this already. So I, I will go back to my favorite question, which is, how do we do this better? And um, I'm sorry, I, I keep bringing this up, but I, I think sitting in Brussels, especially something that we hear all the time is this question on which are the areas that we should prioritize in our intervention, in our support to partners? What is it that we can do better? I mean, most, if not all of the important thematic areas are covered. I mean, this goes from uh, justice reform, security sector reform, uh, local governance, national governance, uh, economic development, and so on and so forth. So I, I, I do think that in terms of thematic priorities, it's pretty well covered. The question is, is that is I think not so much the what, but the how, how this is done. And this is where we're missing the mark, I think, to a large extent. There is a need to go much more local. And this is uncomfortable for development, stabilization, and peace building partners, because it means dealing directly with very small organizations in very remote places in a way that's extremely time and staff consuming. But this might be the way to actually get to the bottom of very specific local issues. A second element, I think, is connected to this first one, the the need to refocus on people's priorities. And by this, I mean wondering and asking ourselves who it is that we're running these interventions for. Earlier, we were talking about the anti-French feeling that's in, in some of the Malian opinion. I think this is also linked to the difficulty for people to understand how it comes that there are specific forces deployed in a country with no specific protection of civilians mandates when this is their priority. And just telling them, well, we're here for something else and someone else is doing protection of civilians isn't enough. We need to acknowledge this, that it's it's just not enough. So that's the second point. The third point, I think, is focusing not just on red zones, but also on everything that's around. One of the trends we've seen over the last few years is that, well, when most or all of us are focused on looking at, on this specific point on the map, because this is where violence is occurring right now, while the situation is actually deteriorating somewhere else. This is what happened with Central Mali when everyone was looking at the north, or with Northern and Eastern, mainly Eastern Burkina, when everyone was looking at Central Mali. I do think we should learn from that and move away from the very, I mean, understandable, but still rather narrow stabilization approach that pushes us to look only at the red zones and have a much broader view and try to also stabilize the areas that haven't collapsed yet, and where prevention actually is still possible. And then the last point, I think, is we need to get political. We need to acknowledge that just technical interventions will not substantially help in solving such a complex problem. This means engaging on a diplomatic level with very complex issues. 
something that the militarization of the state apparatus in Mali is a trend that was identified months ago, but which perhaps more could have been done about before it led to what it led to in, in May. This is just one example, and I'm sure some international partners try to do something about it, but that's also where the coordination and the common efforts need to happen. On having different interlocutors, I think this is fundamental. And I mean, I I will repeat this forever, but from a European perspective, once again, the EU is one of the biggest donors in the region um, to all sorts of initiatives, not just development, but of course, um, also security, peace building, etc. And generally, the organizations that receive European money do so through a middleman, through UN bodies, for example. So it's very rare for civil society organizations based, for example, in Tilaberi, to be able to ask for European funding directly. And I think the finance question is fundamental. So it, it just connects to, to the first thing you said. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in on what Nella said before, that I think that there is a need to go beyond this security discourse, which, of course, is a way to meet and have a common objective, a common enemy, a common objective between external and local actors. This is a way for external actors to be involved in the region. And that's important to, to stay involved, I think. Because as you said before, we don't know what would happen if all of a sudden all the external actors disappeared. And this security discourse, that has been the way into the region. But I, as you say, I don't think that that's enough anymore. I think that there is a need to go into the uncomfortable questions about governance, a word that often is mentioned, but rarely is defined. So I will say how I define it, that I will say that governance for me means that it's a state that's capable of delivering the basic Um, services to its population in a transparent and democratic way. And that's not the case in any of the states that we're discussing at the moment. There will be a need, and we have seen that in the EU's um, Sahel strategy, that there is a turn towards Mm -hmm. more accountability, which can go both ways, right? We (laughs) know that it can be a way to actually put more distance in between external and local actors, but it can also be a way Because as Nella said, uh, local populations are quite frustrated with all this money that's poured into the region, but where there is not as much result coming out of it. So I think that, um, and I said that, argued that earlier, that at the moment there are many external actors who are staying in the region, not just because of the context, but they have other additional objectives. And that's not a problem per se, to have an objective that you want to be a credible team player or that you want to support France, so you're going to intervene under Barkhane or Takuba, or that you want to be part of uh, UTM and show that you're for European integration. That's not really the problem. The problem is that local elites can see that external actors want to stay in the region for this logic of their own, of just staying there. And that means that the accountability approach loses a bit of its effectiveness that if you're talking about conditionality, but you know that the external actors are keen to stay in this region, it doesn't really have any effective yeah, Yeah, even just from a communication point of view, exactly. This makes a lot of sense. I, I fully agree. Coming at this from the UK, Nina's last point was around the problems of providing small tactical deployments simply to be there and simply to be an ally. They seem particularly pertinent to the UK, where we've sent to the UN mission in 
in Mali and it is quite a kinetic force and it does address like tactical gaps within intelligence that might be important but I think now it's an important time for the UK to think well what is the diplomatic and development aspects that we think that we should be addressing we can't just send a military force and think that we'll fix the problems in the region or that we can just be there in light of Brexit but not have ramifications for long-term peace and stability in the places where we deploy forces. So thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who listened. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We will release every new episode on the 20th of every month. And you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for WarPod or following us at Twitter at War underscore pod. Thank you and see you next time. (laughs) 